feeling very blind this morning. Um, so Corrine at the back has uh, things to hand out for the kids. So, um, and adults if you're feeling bored. So uh, put up your hand if you would like something to color in, if you'd like to doodle during the sermon. You can doodle. Yes, and Josie's going to come down and get that now, is that right? So Corrine has doodling stuff for us to do. We're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2, if you want to look it up in your Bible. You know, this morning, um, my in-laws are visiting us. They uh, aren't here, as far as I know, because Caroline came to church with their car keys. Um, So um, they are stuck at home. But my in-laws are there. They had parked their car in front of the neighbor's drive. Not quite in front of it, but he was blocking his car. So he came out, and we were chatting. And I said to him this morning that I was preaching on the wise men. And he had watched a Discovery Channel documentary on the wise men. Now, he didn't agree with everything I was going to say. You know those moments where someone says something to you and you go, oh, I don't know how to respond to that. He said, you know, the Discovery Channel had found some, you know, things about this story that made sense. But then he says, but you know the way people pass it from person to person to person and it begins to change. And, of course, that's not what we believe. You know, sometimes people think about the Chinese whispers. You know, you have that game. You start at one side of the room and you work around to the other side of the room and the story has changed. But Scripture isn't like that because Scripture was written down. And we have lots of evidence to show us what the original manuscripts would have said. And so it would be like um, having Chinese whispers, but instead of going from person to person to person to person, it was written down right at the beginning and passed from person to person to person to person. Then it wouldn't change. Does that make much sense? And so we live. And, and now we come to one of the stories in the birth narratives of Jesus that might be the hardest one to take in. You know, this star. And, and maybe you've seen, I have a picture in my head back home in Cork of a, you know, a stable. And above the stable is a star. And, and you know, there's the three wise men. And it's, you know, even as a child, that was hard to believe. Like to think of a star that close would just, you know, burn everything up. And uh, what do we make of this story? Well, um, you remember, and I'm thankful that Andy didn't choose it this morning. I should have warned you um, that there's that hymn that we sing, that carol, the three wise men, is it? How do we call it? Wise men, what is it? We three kings of Orient are. Now, there's a lot of things about we three kings of Orient are that aren't actually historical. So, for example, we don't know that there were three kings. There were three gifts, but I could give Caroline, in fact, I'm giving Caroline five gifts tomorrow, but there's not five of me. Yeah, they're all small. They're all small. Yeah, I'm waiting to see what she gives me. Um, but, But, you know, we together could give three gifts. So we don't know the number. Then the other thing, too, is that there are... You know, we're told these three kings, they weren't kings. They were magi. We're going to see the significance of that later on in the sermon. They weren't actually at this stage, we see, they weren't in a manger in a stable. They were in a house. I I suspect what happened was that they stayed there for some time. They may have moved into a house. They may be renting before they moved. And, of course, they have that baby. And just look at Patrick or Emmet as uh, what it would have been like. You know, it's... It's quite incredible, is it not, to think of the creator of this universe becoming a toddler, an infant, a baby. That, that's, that's hard to get your head around. 
So I want to say three things about this story today. The first is, this story rings of authenticity. Okay, you might find this the hardest story in the New Testament to believe about the birth narratives, but actually there's lots of reason to believe that this is an authentic, a true story recorded to us by Matthew. The second thing that we learn in this story is that this story is about the wisdom of God. This story is about God's wisdom being greater than the wisdom of the world. And then the last thing we're going to think about is that this story demands a response. So let's think about this idea that this story rings of truth. There was a guy called J.B. Phillips. He was a Bible commentator, and he wrote about the New Testament. And one of the things he said about the New Testament is that he said, it rings of truth. That's one of the saddest things about our friends is that many of them assume they know what the Bible says without actually ever reading it. And when you read this story, it does not speak as something that was simply made up. This is not a bunch of fairy tales. This rings of actual events and actual people. And you can see this, for example, in some of the history that we know around this story. For example, take the idea of a star appearing and people thinking it had something to do with the birth of a king. Well, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar died. And around the time he died, there was a whole lot of comet activity. It became known as Caesar's Comet. And it did the astrology business a great service because people began to associate star activity with a life and events in the life of a king, like his birth or his death or his coronation to kingship. And then, and it's not from Jewish historians that we know this, but from pagan historians, there was a belief that a king was going to be born amongst the Jews. And so it's quite natural when a star appears that the wise men would head to Jerusalem where they knew or believed that a king was going to be born. And then what we find is that the star, well, they go to the Jerusalem and they ask about this child and they're directed to Bethlehem. And I don't know much of the Greek, but apparently in the Greek, when we read that the star led them, it, it apparently it simply means that it was over Bethlehem rather than over the stable. And I realize that is quite hard to take in. And then, of course, there's everything here that we read about Herod. You know, Herod who later goes on to have the children killed. Herod who is jealous and paranoid. And that actually makes sense to who Herod was. The Herod of this time, and Herod was a type like king, who died actually in 4 BC. And, and this is one thing that we, we can admit, that when the church in about the 300s decided to start, you know, figuring out the date of Jesus' birth. They got it slightly wrong. It's about 4 BC. This Herod was dying. And this Herod was paranoid. 
And everything you read in this account and the next passage about this Herod rings true to what he's like. He was a man who had had his favorite wife killed and his two sons. He was a paranoid man who was dying. And you know where it says all Jerusalem was concerned with him. It's not that they were upset at the idea that Herod might go. But they knew that when this king who was paranoid and insecure hears that there might be another king in town, they realize that he's volatile. Who knows what he'll do? So there's so much in this that rings of truth. But the biggest thing that rings of truth in this story is what the wise men are called, magi. What word do we get from magi? Magic. Magic. Every time that these men were astrologers, think horoscopes. They were learned men who tried to to get their philosophy through the stars. And every time that this sort of stuff is mentioned in the Old Testament or elsewhere in the Bible, it is condemned. So they're doing stuff that is condemned. One of the things about that is that it makes this story so open to misunderstanding, doesn't it? Because you have these magi practicing their magic, and they're the ones who come to worship Jesus. Why would you make that up? Matthew, a Jew, writing about his Messiah, and he talks about magi. Why would he include that? For two reasons. We'll see the second in a moment. But the first reason is simply because it happened. Because you would not make this story up this way and include magi with their magic when it was so mis or open to misunderstanding. And this is the second thing we learn about the story. The story is about the wisdom of God. You see, magi in those days with their astrology and their philosophy were considered the wisest, the most learned people in that ancient world. Now, we might laugh at that because if you think about it, we know that horoscopes are a load of quack. You know, these are quacks. But what you've got to realize is that the world's wisdom is always changing. You know, there are things that we believe in our culture today that just 50 years ago they would never have accepted. And in 50 years' time, they will laugh at. There's a thing called chronological snobbery. And that means that every generation thinks it knows more than the generation that went before it. And we live at a time marked by arrogance where we think we know so much more than previous generations. And we forget the fact that in the future, people are going to laugh at some of the things that our culture believes. And that's the exact same here. We want to laugh and go, these are the wisdom of that day, guys who look at the stars and try to figure out what's going on in the world. And of course it's nonsense. But there are many things in our culture that will be laughed at in a hundred years' time. 
This was the wisdom of their day. This was an account of the brightest and the best of their day. And what do they do? They bow before Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so the world's wisdom comes before this child and bows to a superior wisdom. And it says we know nothing. You know, the world's wisdom comes and here are people. And and I don't know about you, but are you searching? You know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And these wise men who have dedicated their lives to figuring things out come before this baby and the Holy Spirit works in their heart to say, but this is the wisdom that you spent your life searching for. And it can be true of everything else. The satisfaction that you want, this is it. This child is it. And I'll pick this up later, and I was going to leave this to the end, but the writer G.K. Chesterton says this, Meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. You have spent your life looking for something, and you have been left feeling empty. Tomorrow morning, you'll get all your presents, and for a brief moment you'll have the thrill and there's nothing wrong with presents by the way okay Uh, particularly my family take note Um, but you'll get all your presents but will they fill the void will anything you get will anything you get any relationship any person any gift any money any recognition will it give you what you need Augustine writing in the fourth century wrote in his book, Confessions, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Here were these men who had dedicated their lives to finding something, to wisdom. And when they come before this child, the Holy Spirit lets them see that this is the end of all true searches for wisdom in this child. How? Well, I want you to think of three great seasons in the Christian calendar. This is the wisdom of God. Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Christmas. Here's the child. We saw at the carol service, everything in the Old Testament says that God is inapproachable. You get too near to him and you fall down dead. You can't go up the mountain of Sinai where he is. You can't go behind the curtain in the tabernacle or you'll drop dead. So here's the wisdom of God. God has found a way where unholy people like ourselves can approach him and see his face and not drop down dead. As veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. In some ways, he hides his glory for us so that we can look at him. And yet, in the wisdom of God, he reveals God's character and God's glory. Easter. How can God 
be our rescuer and be our substitute. How can we say God is the one who rescues Jesus? He'll save his people from his sin, their sin, and yet stand in my place because nobody else can pay the debt we owe if they're not human. But if they're not God, well, then it's not God doing the rescue. The wisdom of God shown at Easter on that cross. One man, the one mediator, God the Son find grace. And Pentecost. Pentecost, probably the, the, the one that we put down, that we don't celebrate enough. And Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. How can God with us become God in us? As Jesus gives the Holy Spirit and Christ comes into our hearts to change us. And so you have the wisdom of God. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to be eternally relevant, you need to speak eternal truths. Because so much of what our culture today thinks is wisdom will be laughed at in 100 years' time, just as we mock what people believed 100 years ago, in every realm. And yet, the wisdom of God will remain eternal seen in the person of Jesus and celebrated Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And then finally, because um, I realize uh, particularly the children will be getting restless, and, and when the children get restless, the parents get restless, and when the parents get restless, everyone gets restless. But think about the response. Think about the response in this story to the person of Jesus. There's three responses. The first is the response of the religious leaders, apathy. You know, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they know where Jesus is going to be born, but do they go? No. They know that, that the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, but they stay in Jerusalem. They're just not bothered. That is a picture of our society. You know, if they knew more of God, they might be more offended by him. But by putting to the back of their thoughts, he's just seen as an inoffensive good teacher, which he never gave us the option of being. And then there's hatred. Look at the response of Herod. Hatred. Why is Herod so afraid of this child. Why is Herod so afraid of this child? Because he's got his kingdom. And his kingdom he wants to protect. And Jesus comes, does he not, as a king. And he doesn't say, look, just take me as a good teacher. No, he comes as a king and he says, I'm going to change everything about your life. And the truth of the matter is, we don't like anyone encroaching upon our space. I was reading a book and it said this. It said, watch your children. You know, when they're a certain age, what do they do? You put them in the back seat and they go, this is my side, that is your side. Do not encroach upon it. This is my kingdom. Now, they don't use that word, obviously. And what does the other kid inevitably do? Moves gently across to try and take some of the kingdom, shift across just to annoy him. We don't like people coming 
and disturbing our peace. We don't like people coming and challenging our comfort. We don't like people dictating what we should believe. We don't like people dictating what we should do with our possessions or what our ambition should be. We want to hold on to our kingdom. And when Jesus comes, people resist like Herod. But what was the last reaction? Joy. Joy. It literally says they rejoiced with great joy. Joy. And this is why I put up this quote. Because they found something in Jesus that brought them great joy. And Jesus wants to bring us joy. And he wants to satisfy the pain and the heart. Because no matter how great the present is tomorrow, you'll still have that ache in a week's time. And you can distract yourself with everything all you want. But only Jesus can bring the fulfillment as he does with his forgiveness, his presence, and his purpose. And finally, just to wrap up, I'm so glad, I didn't know you were going to do it, In a Bleak Midminster, because I was swimming yesterday and I was thinking, what's the name of that song? You know, the one that goes, if I were a, you know, and I couldn't remember, there was something about a lamb and stuff like that. I wrote it down this morning. If I were a shepherd, I would bring him my lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what I am, or what I can, I give him. I give him my heart. It's the only proper response to the beauty of Jesus. You don't purchase anything from him. He comes with a gift. But that gift provokes a response within him. Joy. They rejoiced with great joy and they saw his value. The wise men, they brought those gifts. And one of the central things about those gifts is those gifts were expensive, but they saw that Jesus was worth it. And what can we give in return? There's only one thing we can give. I give him my heart. Amen. Tiago, will you pray?